Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening, too, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send them to us, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like proper spelling, feel free to join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and as we are either live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time or airing a previous broadcast automatically, you can join us there and see the email address and contact information spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen. If you would also like to join us on social media, Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. If you subscribe or like us there, you will be notified when we are going live, but note that if we aren't on for reasons that aren't our fault, uh, you can still join us on our website. If we're taken down on those platforms, we have our church website as the main ministry media meeting place See that five times fast for where you can join us to send us your Bible questions. However, we'll use these resources while we still can. As long as your question is sincere regarding the Bible and a question, we will be happy to provide an answer. And we look forward to engaging with you. But uh, noting the start of the week uh, is one we want to equip you for in regards to apologetics, giving a reason for the hope that is within you. We, of course, don't want to take a single step without dedicating the time in prayer. So why don't we do that? Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word among your people. And we pray in your spirit, fill Peter and I with your hearts, that we can not only communicate your word, but also to do so with your voice and your heart. Allow your name to not only be properly represented here, but your heart to be blessed and your people to be honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Note that last statement, people to be honored. I'll think about it. But when we're talking, he he knows what (laughs) uh, the Spirit intercedes with groanings that cannot be uttered. When we're talking about uh, proper prayer and segueing into the apologetics topic, obviously there's lots of things that we've heard as far as how to pray, where to pray, when to pray, and so forth. But that we pray is something I assume you learned from somebody. Uh, We, of course, have it demonstrated in the Bible, but it was taught to us us, whether by example or by just osmosis. It was just the thing that Christians do. Obviously, we want to encourage personal Bible study, but we thought today's topic would be to address something that's oftentimes laid at our feet as an accusation. You're not teaching people anything. You're indoctrinating them. You're just trying to get people to fall in line with your worldview. But when the world does it, when people other than Christianity present their worldview, you call it indoctrination. Obviously, people can use fancy four-syllable words uh, all they like to service the point, but words mean things. So we want to make sure that not only the way we approach things like prayer, like Bible study, like the Christian life, as whether or not we're learning it or being indoctrinated into it or not, we want to avoid that. But in the same way, we want to make sure we're not accusing people of doing things that we ourselves are doing and calling it both wrong. That would be hypocrisy. So, When it comes to the terms, and this will be our Apologetics Monday discussion, the difference between indoctrination and education, to be taught something as opposed to being brainwashed. 
what are the differences and how do we spot them, not just in our own lives, but externally as well? Uh, yeah, no, very good question. And one that we need to look at very objectively, right? Because to be fair, there is a lot of religious abuse that does happen within the church um, and outside of the church. We'll get to that in a second, yeah. where <clears throat> this kind of methodology of indoctrination is implemented very frequently. So the the main distinction between indoctrination and education is indoctrination is simply getting someone to uh, essentially shut out all thought that goes beyond what I want for them. So in other words, it's me forming their minds to not be critical, to not be uh, investigative, but just to believe exactly what I believe without ever asking or questioning it. Right. So that's indoctrination. Li- yeah. Limiting information rather than exposing it. It's not just telling someone what to believe. Teaching and indoctrination both do that. Mm-hmm. But it's making sure they aren't aware or don't desire anything apart from what's handed to them. That's right. And I'll, I'll explain the techniques in a second of how that is done. Um, but education, by the way, doesn't necessarily have to be devoid of this type of teaching, as you said, Sean. So in other words, if someone attends a church and they hear of a very particular worldview about God, no matter what age range they're in when they're listening to these things, they're not necessarily being indoctrinated. Now, they might be, but simply teaching someone within a particular worldview doesn't mean that you're indoctrinating them. The main goal of education is to get someone to be a critical thinker. So obviously there is a secondary goal when I'm educating someone is that because I believe that the things that I think and the way the ways that I think and the things that I believe um, are all good things. If I didn't think that way, then I wouldn't believe the things that I do. Right? If I if I thought that everything I was believing was a lie or foolish or harmful, then I wouldn't believe them. Obviously, the way that I think and the way that I believe, I think that these are positive things. So why wouldn't I want someone to share them with me? However, the main goal of education is not to get someone to think the way that I do. That could be a byproduct of the education process. But the main goal is to get someone to be a critical thinker in which they can come to conclusions on their own. Now, there's an entire book of the Bible that's actually dedicated to this. It's the book of Proverbs, right? So the main issue with the book of Proverbs, is it teaching people content? Yes, there are very specific lessons taught in the book of Proverbs, lessons about money, lessons about marriage, lessons about good, evil, right, wrong, honesty, dishonesty, courage, laziness, wrath. All these themes are taught within the book of Proverbs, and there are very specific takes that the author of Proverbs has, meaning he's not giving every take. He's not saying like, hey, let me give you every philosophy about laziness. Uh, Let me explain that there are some cultures out there that believe being lazy is a good thing, and it's a way to honor their God. He doesn't do that. He does give one very specific worldview about what he thinks about these certain topics. Now, he does defend his particular ideologies, which is interesting. But if you look at the majority of Proverbs, it's not really aimed at teaching specifics. The majority of Proverbs is actually trained at getting you to be a critical thinker. That's the big bulk of the book. The topics within it could be argued are there to actually exercise your cognitive faculties. So in other words, he brings up for instances to say like, hey, let's think about finances. And then he actually starts plying at the young man's intellect by not giving him the whole truth, but giving him partial truths or maybe deeply layered truths. If you want to put it that way, that might be a better way to word it. 
Because again, this is not to get him to just think like an automaton. This is to get him to think critically, to think like an individual. So if I want to indoctrinate someone, the level of specificity in which I teach actually goes up, not down. So this is uh, from a guy named Steve Hassan. He might be the expert on cults uh, out there. You could look him up. He's very, very well-spoken. He is an Orthodox Jew, and he's just very, very bright. Now, he was a member of a cult at a certain point. He joined a cult called the Moonanites when he was in college, and he explains his experience with going in, but essentially they thought a guy named Sun Young Moon was the second coming of Christ, and they followed him like a like a leader. His and wife it, was the Holy Spirit and all of them the full nine yards. Exactly, and he was in this cult for a while. He finally got out of it, and that inspired him. Someone in his church community, well, synagogue community, because like I said, he's a Jew, uh, encouraged him. They said, hey, this is a part of your story. Make it count. And that inspired him to actually educate himself upon cults. And like I said, he was so moved and he was so motivated by this desire that he became essentially the expert on cults and how they operate. Now, he makes a very interesting distinction because, again, he was moved by a religious cult. But because he's had to study cults all over, when he got out of that cult behavior, he actually became a secular atheist for many years, thinking that religion was the cause. But as he studied cult groups throughout the world, he realized, oh, there are actually a lot of atheistic cult groups out there. And that made him realize religion isn't the problem, something else is, and that brought him back to his Jewish roots. But this is him describing the conditions of thought reform. So this is what has to be present, that not all of them have to be present, but a good number of these have to be present in order for genuine thought indoctrination can take place. And this can happen in a one-on-one -on -one relationship. He explains this. It could happen in a dating relationship. It can happen in a school. It can happen in a job, like a corporate structure. It could happen within a religious structure. It could happen within uh, a group, like some sort of a just out-of-office group that you start, you know, whatever it might be. But these are the conditions necessary to make someone have the same type of indoctrinated thought patterns. Number one, create a tightly controlled system that is closed of all logic that is without, wherein dissenters feel that their questioning indicates something inherently wrong with them, like a lack of faith. Keep recruits unaware of un and uninformed that there is an agenda to control them or to change them. Thought reform is impossible when a person is functioning at full capacity with informed consent. Uh, next, he says, require permission for major life decisions. So if I want to do anything, you have to say you have to ask permission of the group. Uh, discourage individualism. Encourage groupthink. Instill obedience and dependency upon the group itself. Deception, deliberately withhold information, distort information to make it more acceptable, systematically lie to the cult member, compartmentalize information into insider versus outsider doctrines, encourage spying on other members, unethical use of confession, information about past sins to dissolve identity boundaries. Past sins are then used to manipulate and control. There is no forgiveness or actual absolution for past indiscretions. Instill black and white thinking, decide between good versus evil, organize people into us versus them mindset, insiders versus outsiders, uh, thought stopping techniques. These are kind of interesting. And these you will see within various churches, which shut down reality testing by stopping negative and uh, stopping negative and allow only so-called good thoughts uh, are used. 
Denial, rationalization, justification, wishful thinking, chanting, meditating, praying, speaking in tongues, singing or humming, rejection of rational analysis, critical thinking, constructive criticism, no critical questions about leader, doctrine, or policy is allowed, alternative belief systems viewed as illegitimate, evil, or not useful. Now, real quick, when he talks about prayer and stuff, since we're in kind of a condensed time, I don't have to get into all of his uh, whatever. But like I said, he didn't see this as being predominantly religious. Now, what he means is that there is a type of praying that is rote recitation. That's what he's talking about with chanting, praying, and that's why he lumps them together. So this is not someone thoughtfully making their uh, wills known to God. This is someone reciting a memorized prayer. That's what he means by praying. So if you give someone a prayer and you say, you can't actually pray for what you want, you can only pray in this language, in this methodology. This is thought-reforming type of techniques. Uh, even people who would uh, emphasize tongues, I'm not saying everyone who speaks in tongues is necessarily doing this, but I'm saying when people chant in a language that they don't understand, it actually has an effect of shutting down cognitive faculties, right? In other words, it makes you more ready to be indoctrinated when you do something like that. And by the way, people have pointed out that a lot of Eastern philosophies do this. That's why they chant. That's why you hum when you meditate. That kind of innocuous sound, it drowns out rational thinking if you do it often enough. It's kind of like if you say any word, right? If I were to like say, say the word spoon a hundred times, by the time you got to 80, you're like, it, it, loses all, <laughs> it loses all kind of semblance of meaning. It starts to break down what you even think about the word. If you repeat anything often enough, it starts to break down your cognitive fa faculty. So I encourage you guys, try it. It's a, it's a fun little exercise. Just pick a word and say it 100 times and see what it sounds like at the end. Hopefully not a fond one. Yeah. <laughs> and do it after this broadcast, not right now. <laughs> Manipulate and narrow the range of feelings. Some emotions are deemed evil, wrong, selfish, or as sexual repression. Um, excessive use of guilt identity. You are not living up to your potential. Your family is deficient. Your past is suspect. Your affiliations are unwise. Uh, extreme emotional highs and lows. Love bombing and praise. Then you are horrible and you're a sinner and you're evil. Phobia indoctrination, inculcating irrational fears about leaving the group or questioning the leader's authority, meaning that if you doubt our teachings, you will be killed, you'll, you'll commit suicide, something like that. Now, when I go through these, and he's got a couple more, but when I go through these, you could, obviously, if you're listening, you'll be like, yeah, I could think of some religions that do these things, right? Islam jumps off the page to me. Uh, a lot of Islamic teachings do this recitation of particular prayers, not questioning the mullahs, not questioning the imams, not questioning the teachings of Muhammad, uh, right? In fact, the word Islam literally means to submit, and you are not a true Muslim unless you have no resistance against the teachings of the Prophet and Allah, right? There's a lot of cult-like mind control contained within it. Uh, Jehovah's Witness is actually the main one that I, in, I've interacted with where you see that there's a lot of cult control within their particular ideologies. Again, I'm not talking about necessarily the content of what they're teaching because a lot of what Jehovah's Witness teach is actually good. I agree with probably around 70% of what they teach, um, but there's 30% that I vehemently disagree with. And the way that they get their members to believe what they're teaching is very unsavory indeed, like I said, using these types of techniques. But also, when we talk about this, this does sound a lot like what's happening in our culture right now, especially around gender ideology. Are there people, let me, let me just run through a couple of these. Are there people today who make it a matter of life and death 
to believe or disbelieve in gender ideology. Well, if you deny my identity, then you're responsible for the suicide rates, supposedly. That's right. How about phobia indoctrination? Is there an intent to inculcate anxiety and worry in people regarding these things? I don't have to give an example. <laughs> Extreme emotional highs and lows. Is there examples of people who are bombarded with praise and adoration when they make a certain affirmation in their life as opposed to making or as opposed to, again, uh, immediately turning on those people when you feel like they're not agreeing with you 100%. Pride parades and the testimonies of people who've been cast out by their families. Exactly. Uh, a good example that uh, has been getting in the press recently, again, is J.K. Rowling, right? J.K. Yeah. Rowling was like the, the darling of the leftist movement. She was the uh, huge perpetrator of feminist ideologies, huge perpetrator of what we would consider woke ideologies, and very pro-homosexuality and LGBTQ. But the second that she said, well, you know, there is a such thing as a biological female, she was shunned and kicked into the seventh circle of hell, and everybody hates her, and now everyone's talking about why Harry Potter would be so much better if she didn't exist, which I don't know how you square that circle. <laughs> she didn't exist. There would be no Harry Potter. But what are you going to do? Um, excessive guilt, once again, just went over that. Uh, manipulate and narrow the range of feelings, meaning that you can only say that these emotions are good, these emotions are bad. If you're not doing that, then you're repressing your sexuality, things like that. Do I really have to give examples of that? Uh, and then uh, on and on you can go. So like I said, this is not simply relega relegated to religious activity. This is practiced vehemently by secularists all the time. And in fact, if you read some of the great writings about cult-like material, I think about 1984, I think about Animal Farm, I think about Fahrenheit 451, I think about Brave New World. These are all secularist societies. These are all godly societies that are being thought of, of people, by the way, who are themselves godless, right? So it's not like these are religious people writing these, these books saying like, ah, oh, you know, atheism is so terrible. These are atheists who have lived through it. And they're like, no, this is really, really bad. And it doesn't really work. Uh, so... When it comes to this kind of mindset, like I said, the intent is just to get someone to think the way that I do. It's not to get them to the place where they can critically think. So can churches do this? Absolutely. Do churches do this? Yes, they do. All the time. All the time. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Bath you can't say because education can be manipulated by people in order to indoctrinate, therefore, all types of one-sided education are bad. If you wanted to teach on any topic and you had to give every single ideology regarding that topic equal wavelength, you would never get through anything. You would not be able to educate anyone on any topic. And it wouldn't be fair <clears throat> to say they're indoctrinating people because of a lack of time, just like it's unfair on, for people on this broadcast to say you're hiding and distorting the scripture when we only have an hour to discuss multiple <laughs> Bible questions. That's right. But a key difference is if I'm genuinely educating you, I will encourage you to go look these things up. I'll say, hey, this is, this is what these people believe. I might be able to go over it very rapidly, but I'll say, hey, Look at them up, you know, and if you attend our church, we encourage people to read the Book of Mormon. We encourage people to read the Quran. We encourage people to read the Hadith. We encourage people to read the, the writings of the Bible, Watchtower and Tract Society, as well as many atheistic uh, writings as well. And we encourage debate and things like that. Why? Because, again, we want critical thinkers. Do we disagree with what these people are saying? Yes. Do we adamantly oppose what they're saying and we try to pull out inconsistencies in their logic? Absolutely. 
but we also don't block people from that information. We encourage people to look at it for themselves. So this is very, very important. Indoctrination happens when, again, you are not concerned primarily with someone growing. You are only concerned with teaching them what you want them to believe. Now, very interesting. There's, there's a couple things I want to pull out here uh, very quickly before we move on to the questions because I know we're getting a lot right now. Um, number one is emotional manipulation is always the goal of this. So there's a really interesting scene in a brave new world where they talk about how they educate people through their sleep. And one of the boys is like, well, if you could educate me through this, through my sleep, why do I go to school? <laughs> why don't you just, why don't you just educate me through my sleep? I don't have to go to school anymore. And the teacher says, okay. And he starts repeating a fact over and over again. He does it about 10 times. He says, repeat that fact back to me. It's a complicated fact. And the boy's like, uh, and he gets like a couple lines through it and then he, he comes up like he can't do the whole thing. And then he says, okay, now consider this one. Um, to be sexually repressive is bad. How do you feel? And the kid says, well, I feel bad. And he says, emotions can be trained through indoctrination, but complex thought never can be. Right Now, what this means and what he's getting at is if I'm listening to people, the people that I'm listening to are primarily teaching me how to feel right? That's all they're doing. They're like, you should feel this way about this. You should feel that way about this. And that's all they're doing. And they're using ad hominem attacks against their enemies and their opponents. They're saying, these people are stupid. They're ignorant. They're bigots, right? If I'm throwing out, I'm, I'm intentionally trying to manipulate your emotions, right? That is one of the hallmarks of indoctrination, right? When someone is not trying to explain things to you intellectually, but they're trying only to move you emotionally, they are trying to indoctrinate you. They do not care about your thought process. They only care about you believing what they believe. Second point, very important. Children are the most susceptible to indoctrination, right? The reason why is because until you're about the age of nine, it varies based on the kid, but until you're about the age of nine, you don't have something called concrete thinking. Now, what this means is that you basically just accept anything that anybody with any amount of authority tells you, right? So if I tell a five-year-old that there's a fat guy who lives in North Pole, comes every Christmas day on a magic sleigh pulled by nine reindeer and leaves him presents, he'll just believe me, right? He doesn't need any evidence beyond the fact that I just tell him. If I tell him that there's a mystical fairy that flies around and takes his discarded teeth from, out, from under his pillow and leaves him a quarter, I don't know, with inflation, maybe it's a dollar or something like that, he just accepts it, right? There's no questioning there. He'll just accept what I'm saying. So because kids are indoctrinated so easily, there is a danger in what level of education that I give someone. So again, this is coming from a brave new world. If I want to indoctrinate children, what I do is I introduce subject matter that they're not ready to understand yet. The reason why is because if I introduce to them really complicated things that they're not ready to get yet, it actually breaks down their ability to rationalize them later on when their concrete thinking catches up with their emotional thinking, right? So in other words, if I sexualize kids very, very young, then when they get old enough where they're finally at the age where sexual topics start to matter, right, because they actually have a sex drive, which would be around 12 or 13, if I've already beaten that to the punch, if I've already beaten their biological trajectory before it starts kicking in and I start teaching them things that they're not ready to understand yet, they'll believe them more readily. And when their body finally catches up, they won't be able to distinguish what their body is telling them versus what they've been indoctrinated to believe. So in other words, 
if I'm talking to someone, this, this would be an easy example. Imagine that I'm talking to someone who has no concept of an ocean, right? They've, they've lived on some, you know, large landmass for the entirety of their lives. Let's say they live in uh, very inland in Africa or something like that. They've never been out of their village. And I'm trying to explain to them what an ocean is like. Now, if I want to indoctrinate them, this is a very good time for me to do it because they have no concept of, of oceans. They just have no idea, right? They've been in a landlocked area for their entirety of their lives. I can start talking to them about anything I want them to believe about oceans. And when they go into the ocean and experience it firsthand, my ideas will start conflicting with what they're experiencing. And because of that, if I've done a good enough job, quote unquote, in indoctrinating this person, they'll lean more on what I've told them and less on what they're actually experiencing. And that's when indoctrination is complete, when someone can't even trust their own experiences but has to have those experiences filtered through what they've been taught, right? That's problematic. If instead I start educating someone about an ocean while they're looking at it, right? I take them to an ocean and I start, then they have a framework where their experiences in my, and that my education are now in a position where they can conflict. Right? So if I tell them something that's not true, they could very easily see it and they could call me out. So if I want to talk to kids about sexual ideologies and I wait until they start experiencing sexuality firsthand, then they'll be able to actually measure their experiences versus what I'm telling them. This makes it much more difficult for me to indoctrinate someone. Can I still do it? Yes. But there was a reason why sex education was prohibited until middle school in most schools nationwide. Now, again, and, and mostly <clears throat> left out of school in general, it was the parents' job to do that because you needed a grounding of values from people you trusted, not from government-ordained individuals. <laughs> That's right. So even that was, like I said, a bridge too far for many people, and I'm inclined to agree with them. I went through sex ed when I was in middle school. It didn't really mess me up, but it really didn't help me either. You know, yeah, it didn't We really both were exposed <laughs> to a uh, very interesting view of sex before any lessons were held on it. That's right. So... Uh, that's why there are so many people vehemently uh, opposing certain ideologies being taught in elementary school. Because, again, to them, that is by nature indoctrination. There, in other words, there is no good way to teach a subject matter like that to a child. Like that. Not to teach in general. <clears throat> like that. Because they're not fine. emotionally ready to understand it. Another example, this is actually from Thomas Sowell. He gives an example that's really interesting as well. Uh basically talking about the past. So uh, he mentions how in elementary school, sometimes teachers will say, like, imagine if this happened to you, right? And they'll talk about how uh, maybe colonists came into the new land, or even though they might even talk, if they're more progressive and uh, a little bit more fair, they'll even talk about the warfare of certain Native American cultures or the warfare that happened in Europe. And they'll talk about the bloody brutality that occurred within. They're like, would you have done that? Would you have done? And what they're doing is they're taking a child who's grown up in a culture that is so unbelievably different than the culture that they're trying to educate them in. It's a child who doesn't understand violence. They don't understand malice. They don't understand evil. They have no framework to understand it. Hopefully. Hopefully, right? They, they might if they've been exposed to some really dark stuff within their short lives. But if I'm doing that, essentially what it can do is it could produce in someone a hatred or even a complete uh, social opposition to past cultures. They could say all these cultures were evil and wicked. Well, it's like, no, they had a different framework for thinking. 
they thought that these things were okay. And if I am educated, if I'm smart enough and I'm an adult and I'm thinking through these things as an adult, I can see why they would believe these ways and why they would act these ways. Do I agree with them? No, but I have hindsight. But a child doesn't have the ability to do that. A kid has no exposure to this type of ideology, so it's very easy to manipulate them in disregarding past cultures if I want to. So there are many examples of this, but again, if I introduce a subject matter that is too mature for a child, I will by necessity be indoctrinating them. So if we were to do this for ourselves, if we were to, you know, open up our Sunday school service with uh, Ezekiel 18 and <laughs> horrify them into the depravity of Israel, then you're going to obviously not only talk over a lot of heads, but talk things into people's heads that aren't going to be rationally handled, just mm -hmm. emotionally reacted to. If on the other hand, I wait till high school or junior high at late at the earliest to maybe approach these topics and say, well, answering your question, no, there are these things in the Bible, but here's the point. I can at least count on them to think in more than one step. Right. That's my intent. That is my purpose. If I'm mandated by my state or my employer to, to basically talk over people's heads but train emotional reactions, then essentially you've become the modern-day news agency. You're just trying to train people to react rather than to respond. Hmm. We want to avoid that. So when it comes to your own walk with God, your own relationships <laughs> with your pastors, teachers, elders, even your fellow Christians, make sure you don't buy into the mindset that if I'm learning, it means I'm feeling. Those are two very different things. And if you only take feelings out of a message, that's probably a sign you're either being indoctrinated or you missed something. Yeah. So we need to make sure that we're prepared for that. Because note, messages can be inspiring. They can also be informative. They can also be manipulative. Right. We need and to know the difference. We always harp here on, uh, at Calvary the threefold <laughs> ministry of the Holy Spirit and the gift of prophecy, edification, exhortation, and comfort. There is an intellectual aspect to it, meaning it's edifying you, it's building you up in your knowledge base, and it's equipping you to understand these truths in a more deep and real way. It is exhorting you. It is encouraging you. This would be more of the ethos, the ethical part of it. It's encouraging you to a different type of behavior, and it comforts you. It emotionally satiates you, right? So none of those three things are bad in and of themselves, but if they're only what you're listening to, then again, they might be a key to indoctrination for sure. Let us know if you have questions about that. Now, at the time we have, uh, let's go out to our questions. This uh, is from our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, who wants to know uh, three things which we don't have answers to. Uh, first of all, are children going to be born during the tribulation? Will they take the mark of the beast, and will they be or face persecution? He also makes a clarification down the road. The individual who asked the question, um, will God stop fertility, I think is what you mean. You say productivity. I can see the point, but there's a word. Uh, during the tribulation, so children won't be indoctrinated by the Antichrist and other evils during that time, as well as the severe persecution. How would they handle mom and dad getting their heads chopped off for the faith? Uh, about as well as I'd imagine they are right now, because people all over the world are having to see this. We live in a culture and a framework that is fortunately <coughs> more withheld from violent aspects. We still see it, but the point being made is we... Uh, are on an island of serenity when it comes to the way people are being treated for their faith. Children have had to watch their parents die for their faith a lot, but whether or not they 
well, basically, uh, were given the time and investment not only by their families but by the Spirit as well, most importantly, to endure during that time period. It's another issue. If you want to get into opinions, again, we don't have record or passages of children in the tribulation, nor do we have records or citation to support the idea that there will be infertility during the tribulation. Now, due to the descriptions we're given of the lawlessness that will abound at this time, I seriously doubt that most people will want to have children during this time. I think uh, abortion will probably be at an all-time high. But the point being made is this. This largely stems from the issue of the age of accountability. Will children be taken in the rapture? Will uh, God have a special provision of salvation for those too young to be able to discern that difference between, uh, well, we've just finished talking about it for a half hour, between indoctrination and information and teaching. Uh, this is all centered around that idea that God knows who can and can't respond and that there's a measure of grace towards those who are too young or incapable of understanding the gospel and that he will cover them regardless of what's forced upon them by their culture. As far as my own opinion on the matter, and I make sure it's an informed one, uh, I'd encourage you, the individual who left the comment, to look up the topic, the age of accountability. There's generally three areas people go to. The first is regarding the bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, the son or daughter of the covenant ceremony, which is reserved for people around the age of 11, I believe. And that's traditionally understood to be a flat date. Other people think it would go as high as when the children of Israel were in that childlike state before entering the promised land, and that's a bit more broad. Also, there's something to be said for the consideration made towards mentally handicapped people, that it's not limited to an age, it's limited to a heart. My father speaks all the time of children he's spoken to who are completely mature and capable of rationalizing and personally receiving the gospel, not just doing it because it makes mommy happy. Likewise, there are people he knows in their many decades, uh, scores of years, who are still living with the cognitive faculties and functionality of a child. It's becoming more and more common. So when we're talking about God's capacity to provide for children, obviously that's the first proof text we want to go to. Look up passages that emphasize God's desire for the well-being of children and also his uh, less than savory responses towards those who would cause their stumbling. That's a quote. The second passage, or a type of passage, I'd recommend you look up in sorting out this issue is not just in regards to children, but also the nature and character of God. Genesis 18 and verse 25 is key. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? If it doesn't fit in your mind for God to send children through the time of God's wrath, then I think there are good ways you can go about that, biblically, not emotionally. The third way I would go through this is not just the character of God and not just his view of children, but also the nature of the tribulation itself. It's key in understanding not only other sticky doctrines like the rapture, things like God's wrath, things like ultimate judgment, things like even how you perceive the future. When we look at the time of Jacob's trouble, the uh, seventh week of Daniel, the time of God's wrath, the tribulation, the great tribulation, take your pick. It all centers around those, and you can see this with Sodom and Gomorrah, with Noah's flood, with Nineveh, and any other manifestation physically of God's wrath. It was always targeted towards those 
who knew better and consciously chose to reject that anyway. If you properly and biblically define a child as someone who couldn't do that, then it makes sense that God would provide a special provision. But we don't have chapter and verse, which is why we encourage further study. But Genesis 18.25 is where I'd start, is does the character of God fit into these hypotheticals in a worst-case scenario? I think they don't. Good. All right, let us know if that helps you out. Um, Going out to our emails here, we've got a few that have been stacking up we want to get to before the individuals who sent them, uh, I guess, miss out. This is in regard uh, from Yari, who wants to know in regards to Adam and Eve's pre-fall state. Obviously, when we see Jesus in his glorified body, he's able to do things that human bodies don't normally do. And he's also able to do things that human bodies can do. That was one of the things he used as proof to them in John chapter 20 and 21. He ate food. He interacted physically with them and so forth. But he also could teleport. (laughs) He could also do things that were, uh, well, not uh, natural to normal human beings. We can go on to that. But the question is centered around that. Will, would... Adam and Eve have had these abilities, and will we have them again? The second half is easier to answer, but the first half, I think, is the key question. Uh, Yeah, we have no evidence of it. So we we have no evidence in the text that Adam and Eve were doing anything supernatural to our uh, understanding of that. So uh, because we have no reason to believe it, I don't think we should. I mean, it's feasible. It's feasible that they were able to, as Sean talked about Jesus' resurrected abilities that uh, he could levitate. He could obviously ascend into heaven. They watched him go up. Uh, He could teleport seemingly into different rooms, uh, things like that. Could they have done that? Probably. I mean, it wouldn't be really like that impressive if everyone could do it, though. So you wouldn't really consider it a superpower if everybody could do it. But it would just go into our connection with the universe, essentially, that we would be able to do things like that. But uh, again, I, I have no reason to believe that Adam and Eve did those things. Now, there is great reason, as Sean said, to believe that we will be able to do those things once we are raised. Why? Because we know that the type of body that we're going to have was modeled by Jesus, right? So one of the reasons why he showed up in his resurrected form was to show us the kind of body that we're going to have in heaven. He was modeling it for us, if you want to put it that way. So uh, I have no reason to believe that we wouldn't uh, have the capacity to do these kinds of things within heaven. I think that's really cool. But like I said, everyone's going to be able to do it. Uh, the reason why superpowers are so desirable in our in in our minds is because we would be the only ones that could do it. If everyone can do it, to quote Syndrome, if everybody's super, nobody is. Right? So if everybody could do it, then nobody is really that superpowered. But that is essentially what's going to to happen. That's what we believe. Uh, anything beyond that, I mean, I, I doubt it. I mean, uh, it, it would be reasonable to believe that maybe our bodies would have higher capacities, like we might be uh, much stronger than we are right now. That That's plausible. We're definitely going to be much more intelligent than we are right now, if you consider that a superpower. I think that's cool. Uh, thirteen. Yeah. That's right. We're not going to have the capacity to decay or to die. So, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty much uh, unkillable and immortal. indestructible, immortal, incorruptible. That's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of having unlimited energy is also provided. So Jesus did eat when he came to see them, but he didn't give any indication of being fatigued, uh, meaning he wasn't like, man, I'm starving. I could, <laughs> you know, like I, I better get some food right now. He just did it to demonstrate to them that he could essentially, uh, that he's not a spirit. And he even tells them that. So we have and no, I idea. didn't have to eat food, but I had the opportunity Israeli fish. 
tops. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there, there are some things that we would consider superpowers that would be indicated in Jesus resurrected form. Yeah. So passages to keep in mind, Yari, first Corinthians 15 in regards to the immortality, the state of the resurrection, Colossians chapter three in the direct citation that will be conformed to his glorious body, his referencing Christ. John chapter 20 and 21 is examples of what that entails beyond just human interaction, but also limited to that. And of course, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. You can read about that environment in Revelation chapters 20. One and 22. So let us know if that helps. And building on that as well, he asked a question today about the new creation. He wants to know if the earth's going to be changed in any way. Um, Not changed. It will be literally remade. Let's first clarify that point. The first verse, Revelation 21, and verse 1 is noting, repeat myself, the old heavens and the old earth passed away. I saw a new heavens and a new earth, not a edited earth it, it's completely different it's completely new if we're going to make comparisons to the previous earth this is part of the reason why we say there are prophecies that have to be fulfilled before this because it references the old earth in a glorified state the jerusalem that jesus will reign from is not the new jerusalem that's a giant cube in the heavens it's referring to the jerusalem as we know it now it's talking about nations and geography that will still be in existence and so with that handling of that text very plainly uh, it'll be a whole new planet it's as far as it'll be the size of Jupiter, hey, we'll examine, uh, I guess, dimensions when we get there. But as far as the emphasis and point, all we are told is what we're told. I think that's a fair place to leave it. What we don't know is what we will learn, but what we don't have to know. So I'm content with that. Hopefully you can be as well. Let us know if that helps. Uh, Dwayne wants to know how people who believe in God should ask when the government begins to take away their rights. Obviously, it's not fun to watch, but the idea of inerrant human rights is a very new idea. And Christians have been around a long time before them, and they will be after. When it comes to people in Scripture, though, people in a right relationship with God, functioning in the absence of rights, what do they do? Uh, Yeah, so it's very interesting— we're not really given what we can do in a positive sense, but we are given what we can't do in a negative sense. So in other words, we have limits around our behavior, but we don't have expectations when it comes to our behavior. So in other words, if uh, you're living in the West and your rights are starting to be uh, infringed upon, taken away, there would be nothing in the Bible that would suggest that you have to fight, that you have to resist in some sort of an active way. Otherwise, you're kind of selling out on your faith. And that's why you see such a great division in how Christians responded to this throughout the ages, right? Because there have been many empires throughout the ages that have tried to infringe on the rights of Christians. And you see different Christians respond in different ways. Some Christians do become more revolutionary. Uh, in fact, Uh, Quite a bit of our founding fathers in America were Christians, so some became more revolutionary. Some became more passive, right? They're like, hey, we're not not happy about it, but we're also not going to do anything about it. That is totally acceptable as well. So you see this kind of distinction because we're not commanded to fight for political power. Now, some of the more revolutionary Christians would make the argument, well, you know, we are called to uh, live quiet and peaceful lives before God— and we should fight for governments that would be conducive to that type of behavior. And, hey, that's great. But, again, to what level do you fight for that? We're not really told. Now, the limitations that are placed upon Christians 
are very important. The number, uh, number one thing would be that we cannot, as Christians, have violent revolutions against people that we deem as oppressors. So, for instance, if the American government started to restrict religious freedoms, I cannot respond by starting a militia in my local church and doing kind of like a Waco situation where we're going to resist the government with guns and try to kill everybody. That's not something that I can do as a Christian. Now, given... Uh, depending on the level of brutality and tyranny that your government is exercising, there are Christians that argue that the level of resistance can rise as the level of oppression rises. So in other words, we have to be um, contrary to what they're doing. We can't overdo what they're doing. So in other words, if a small law that infringes on some of my rights is implemented, I can't go on a violent campaign of destruction and death. However, if the government, say, sends a squad of soldiers to my home and tries to kill me and my family, I can defend myself. So I can use violence in that instance in order to defend myself. So again, there's a lot of debate about these things because we're not expressly told within the scriptures, but there, and there have been varieties of ways that Christians have interpreted these things and gone about them. Now, because it's a very debatable topic, I think it's very fascinating. I think that we could talk about, me and Sean could probably talk about it for the next 30 minutes or so. Might talk uh, about it at the start of next week. Yeah, yeah, we could if, if that's something that would interest people for sure. I think it's an interesting topic to me, you know, so uh, the institution of violence and things like that. But for our sake today, let's focus just on theologically. How should Christians respond theologically, do you think, Sean? Well, I guess starting, as you said, the uh, opposition should uh, match the uh, intervention. But if we're talking about our understanding of God as the one who will ultimately right every wrong, there are three examples of people practicing civil disobedience in very disproportionate ways, and that's in the reverse stat. doesn't mean it's encouraging pacifism, but it does show a reflection of your trust in God in your circumstances kind of puts these things into perspective because we're not there yet. The first example is probably the most obvious is Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were threatened with literal incineration for not conforming to a religious mandate by their government. They said, hey, whether it's right in the sight of God or men to do what you say, hey, we're not going to bow down. And our God is capable of delivering us. But even if he doesn't, we will not serve nor bow down to your image. And by the way, real quick distinction here, because some people get muddled in this. Uh, there's a difference between the government infringing on my rights that pertain to my life with God and the government uh, infringing on some of my rights that I just kind of like. Right. So, for yeah. instance, uh, social media would be a good example. If a platform were to kick us off or something like that, I don't like that. But it hasn't infringed on my capacity to worship God, right? So I, you'd yeah. hear about it a yeah. lot here. We <laughs> we definitely make them the brunt of a few good jokes for at least a year. But That's when right. it comes to that opposition, so our methodology of fighting would be different because it's not necessarily infringing on my capacity to worship God, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it is infringing on a right that I am afforded as a citizen of the United States. So the again, it's just the level of disobedience stuff. Uh, comes into place. But anyway, uh, you're talking about specifically theological infringements, right? Yeah, they were being forced to do something contrary to their relationship with God. And we'll have another example that involves them too in a minute. Their response was, I'm willing to put myself in mortal danger in the trust that either A, my God will intervene, 
or in the assumption that if he doesn't, I'm still going to do the right thing by him because there's this thing called an afterlife. If that's then my priority, then when those rights are taken away, I'm hauled off into these quarantine camps and whatever this ultimately ends up going into China, we have to ask ourselves the question, is God worth that kind of payment? Am I willing to follow him even if it costs me something? This is not something any of us can answer right away. It's either something that in the moment we will be given the grace to deal with or in the little things we do every day are preparing for every single day. But the point being made is that they were willing to put themselves in harm's way if it meant standing for God. The literal right to life was being opposed to them, and they said, I trust a God who is the creator and founder of life. It was directly proportionate to their image of God. The second example is in the first chapter of Daniel, where Daniel and his three friends were both brought to the chief of the eunuchs, probably becoming one of them as well, but they were given portions, it says, from the king's delicacies. Now, this would have included unkosher meat, and in their desire to obey God in the little things, they asked for, notice this, they requested a legal provision for a time to say, hey, we'll just eat vegetables and we'll just drink water. Your job is to get us fat, but we want to honor our God. So if we don't look fatter, as a result of this, then, hey, we'll do what you want. They're willing to compromise, but they also put forward the opportunity for God to prove himself faithful. Notice first example and second example, the assumption of the faithfulness of God, not the presumption of the fallenness of man. Their attention wasn't on how bad can this world get or how gross the meat was. It was, okay, I'm in danger here, or okay, I'm being offered something here that goes against my beliefs. Am I willing to fall back on the nature of God and his ability to take care of me, even if it costs me something? That's not something, again, we can easily cope with, but it is something that we will be dealing with when the time comes. And the little things we do every day prepare us for it. I repeat myself because it is that key. The third theological detail is, again, with the apostles in Acts chapter 4. Their governing authorities told them to not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They took a beating, but they said, we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They would oppose their governing authorities when it directly interfered with or was in direct opposition to the gospel. If that's then our framework, then what builds off of that? First of all, I need to ask myself the question, the things, as you said, that I enjoy, are they worth fighting for? Well, they were fought for. And as they're being taken away, it may take an equal response to maintain them. But we need to understand there's a difference between our civil liberties and our moral liberties. That the sort of things that we can fight for are not always the things that we should. Likewise, on the other hand, if we ask, if I'm fighting for these things, do I understand the difference? Because I wouldn't condemn someone who's fighting for their liberty any more than I would someone who's willing to suffer for it. But the key is motivation. Is my eye on the faithfulness of God? That I'm doing this so that my children would have more of an opportunity to honor God in their lifetimes than I would. The uh, nobility of planting a tree that will not... Uh, that you'll not uh, have the opportunity to sit under the shade in. You're investing in future generations. That's an important facet of this. But make sure that when you're examining motives or even assessing the motives of others, 
our first and most important priority is in the little things I'm doing today, how am I making God more worthwhile than the things that I normally default to? When we fall to sin, we stand back up. When we stand in righteousness, that we're thankful to God he did that in us because whether the format changes or not, that's irrelevant. What I have the opportunity to do today is say, in whatever circumstance I'm in, how can I honor God with what I have? That would be the theological issue. As far as fighting for rights, again, it's different. But make sure that your God and your actions and your intentions all line up properly. That would be my response. Yeah, cool. So I hope that helps. And like Sean said, maybe next week we can get into that for Apologetics Day. Yeah, and another question as well. This is regarding people who are born into houses who are radical Satanists or jihadists. Um, It's an interesting discussion. Why would God let people be born into homes where they would be inundated and indoctrinated with these sort of things. Let me read Acts chapter 17, where Paul the Apostle, speaking to a non-Jewish audience, the people in Athens, said this. This is verse 26 of Acts 17. And he, to all life, breath, and all things, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Here's key and has determined their pre-appointed times. So, oh, I should have been born in like the 60s or the 20s or the, the ancient times. Now, God had you in mind for this time and place. And the boundaries of their dwellings, where you were born, didn't surprise God. But for the purpose of what? Verse 27, that they should suffer, that they should fall, that they should be deceived. No, it says in verse 27 of Acts 17, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He's quoting a non-Jewish source on that, by the way. What's important to understand is when we see people who grow up, quote-unquote, in these antichrist homes, they're not being set up to fail because you can grow up, likewise, in a Christian home and reject a relationship with God. You can come from a Muslim or a Satanist or a fill-in-the-blank upbringing and say, I don't know, rebel, (laughs) seek morality on your own terms, and God will reach out to you individually. The problem isn't circumstances or environments, it's the heart. When we're put into positions where we can minister to people who have these difficult upbringings, it's no excuse or handicap for them to have a relationship with God. God's spoken in a lot more serious and dire circumstances than the ones we live in today. But the point being made is just that, and this is something to keep in balance as well. If you say, well, if I had just been born at a different time or a different place, does the Bible agree with the theory that it's uh, nature and nurture? No, it's God's intervention in our hearts and our own personal willingness to choose him. That is the one and only factor that makes all the difference in eternity. No one's going to hell because they were born in the wrong spot, wrong place, wrong time, or wrong parents. So make sure that that's kept in mind. We've got about two minutes, but uh, Monica has a question I want to get to before we sign off. wants to know the difference between the rapture and the second coming, uh, specifically in regard to the spiritual bodies that are later glorified. So in regards to those things, what are the differences? Uh, Yeah, very brief and uh, actually very simple kind of distinction here. So the rapture is the time where we believe Jesus will come and collect his church unto himself 
prior to the tribulation period. So Jesus is not coming at this moment to set up shop to become king. He is coming only to get his bride out of the way before the wrath of God falls on the earth. Now, the second coming is Revelation 19. This is Jesus coming as a king. He is no longer coming meek and humble riding on a donkey's cold. He is coming on a horse. He is pretty awesome, and he is striking people down. In that righteousness, he in, judges and makes war. In righteous wrath, man, he's going to set the world right. At that moment, when Jesus comes in his second coming, that is when we're going to be resurrected. So uh, the, the words sound similar, but they are different. Raptured means to be caught up. The idea of resurrection means the physical body is raised from the dead. Now, there are people who will be alive during the second coming, meaning that they will be awake. And as we're going through the book of Revelation, there's a lot of people being converted in the book of Revelation. So there will be faithful Christians who will see Jesus come back and they will be changed in a moment, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. They will be immediately raised. But we will be raised as well, the people who were raptured and as well as all the saints who died prior to the second coming will be raised at that moment as well. So that is a physical resurrection as opposed to just a spiritual catching up to be with God. So note the passages, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and then in regards to the second coming, Revelation 19. Those are two distinct events with distinct backgrounds. If you want to know the difference and clarify issues about, well, they both refer to the day of the Lord. Sometimes in the Old Testament, that is a much more interesting topic, but we only got 10 seconds. So let us know if that helps you out, Monica. Just note a glorified body. That's the one that will inhabit heaven forever. But we note those who are raptured will be given glorified bodies. As far as those spiritual bodies, that's more in line with some more foggy details. We'll uh, leave that for brighter minds to sort through. Thank you all for your bright minds and engaging with the broadcast. We'll look forward to seeing you all again tomorrow. So then God bless you. And we'll see you all again. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.